Welcome to Trust the Journey. I'm Melanie Curtis. Our mission is to live, laugh, love, and learn together with you. We're here to create conscious connections, to grow and contribute through our practice of openness, honesty, vulnerability, humility, and trust. Trusting the entire journey. Across the internet family, our handle is trustthejourney.today. If you want a cost-free way of supporting the podcast, supporting the show, please subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Spotify or Instagram, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you like it. If you don't, that's cool. (laughs) You can also share the show or an episode with someone directly that you think it will help. Leaving comments, all of that stuff helps us reach more people. Our Patreon community, the Trust the Journey family, is absolutely how we keep the show going and growing. The family is a private Facebook group where we expand the conversations directly with anyone seeking community, anyone seeking connection and support in their healing journeys too. So we hold deep, safe, non-judgmental, and encouraging space for us all to be vulnerable, supporting each other in the challenges and in our wins. So if you want to join that, you're welcome. Go to trustthejourney.today and join at the $25 Patreon level. That also includes our live integration coaching circles that we're now doing monthly. So we welcome you all. We want to grow this community and we want to help each other along the way. So per usual, when we're talking about plant medicines and psychedelic healing, we are sharing this for informational purposes only. We're not doctors and we don't promote doing anything illegal. We want to expand the knowledge base and and invite people into this learning and into this conversation. So awesome. In today's episode, I am thrilled to welcome Carlos Tanner. Carlos has been studying the science of ayahuasca and plant medicine in the Amazon rainforest since 2003. He currently works as the director of the Ayahuasca Foundation, a nonprofit organization he began in 2009 in Iquitos, Peru. He organizes healing retreats and educational courses led by indigenous healers called Curanderos to help people in need of healing anything from depression to cancer or who are interested in learning the ancestral healing traditions of the Amazon. Since 2017, the Ayahuasca Foundation has also hosted plant medicine research looking into the effects of treatment with ayahuasca on depression, anxiety, and trauma. The research there was published in the journal Frontiers in Psychiatry, demonstrating that attending an ayahuasca retreat can promote epigenetic changes that significantly reduce depression and anxiety. Research continues at the center and will now include studying chronic pain, PTSD, and changes to the gut biome as a result of attending an ayahuasca retreat. Powerful stuff. Carlos, welcome. Thanks so much, Melanie. Great to be here. So glad to have you here. So glad to have you with us. I kind of love to start these interviews with a really present question, like, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling stepping into this space in this particular interview? That's a very interesting question. Um, You know, yesterday I had a conversation with my wife about the worry that I was feeling about the world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it seemed Mm -hmm. like everything seems to be, you know, 
falling apart basically and and ultimately we came to the conclusion that we need to stop looking at those news sources and and those providers mm. of that information as hard as it as as it is to do because our lives are fantastic and full with blessings and and yeah. I don't want to ignore or take a like ignorance is bliss approach but I think that there needs to be a very healthy balance of the reality of our close to home life and and yeah. then balance that with the macro of like what's happening on in the world yeah god it's it's so true i mean talk about choosing intentionally what we consume and what we expose ourselves to i mean that's a big part of why we do this show period is that we believe deeply in in sharing things and human stories and information that we want the world and other people to have access to so i love that i mean it's 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 tough those kinds of boundaries you're like what's the amount of information I need or the amount of access I need to what's going on and what's not. I feel like that's probably something that waxes and wanes over time as well. But I love that. I love that share. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, well, I appreciate that you love that. Um, it, you know, we can feel down <laughs> sometimes. And that's what I was feeling. You know, I was feeling down yesterday and my wife yeah. was like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just worried. You know, the world is like, going in this weird direction and and that's something that I think is a big part of the healing process as a whole and and what leads us into like areas of depression and anxiety and and that's something that I actually like try to address but I think maybe it's important to understand that everybody feels that and there are times when we feel that yeah and and then in, in those times, like, you know what, like more literally, I said, you know what, I'm going to read a book that I know that I love. I, I read it years ago. Mm. It's one of my favorite books called Island by Aldous Huxley. And and I'm going to like mm. get, get into this book. And um, because I, you know, because it was written 50 years ago or however many years ago, um, more than that, probably 55 years ago, it's like helps me to kind of remove myself from the the present day issues, even though that topic, I don't know if you ever read that book, but it's a fantastic book. And I haven't, and even, but and, I would love to. To just kind of get into that um, book as something to do and spend my time uh, away from, you know, following what's happening on in the other yeah. side of the, the world, essentially. Yeah. Well, I love that we started with the uber present. I feel like that's, I just always like to start with the uber present to really check in with you, you know, with, with people that we bring in and, and get to talk to. It's like, you know, what's, what's up? <laughs> that type of thing. Now, before we jump into, uh, like really dive into your vast experience with ayahuasca and the research that you're doing, all of which we'll get to, let's first go to getting to know you a bit more like in, and I want to hear more of your origin story like where did you come from what was your childhood like it I feel like those pieces of information can help inform you as a human being and now as this person who's achieved so much is doing so much that 
is out there inspiring and leading, I'm like, okay, what, what, who is that? Who's that younger person? Where did, where did you start? Well, that's a long story, isn't it? Um, so I was, <laughs> yes. I, I consider myself like a, a typical American child. You know, I was born in, in Maryland. Um, my father was in the Navy at that time. So he was stationed in Maryland. And, and then we moved uh, to a farm in New Hampshire uh, when I was just a, a few years old and then ended up in Southern Connecticut when my father started a business to try to make the first laptop computer called the Roadrunner, uh, which he patented in 1983. So maybe that's not typical. But in my, you know, that wasn't like a huge influence on my life as I remember it. I just kind of felt like I was a regular kid. You know, I still would say that. And, um, but my parents uh, got a divorce and that was this really long, drawn-out battle, which I'm sure half the world probably knows about, or half mm-hmm. the country. Um, and and that did have a really big influence on me, especially at that particular time of my life. And that sent me into a really deep depression. And, yeah. and um, that was like a big struggle that constantly influenced me as I went through high school and mm-hmm. in college. And it kind of was, I could tell that it was looming, you know, yeah. it was like a, a constant depression. I didn't really understand all of the the details of it, but that um, I do feel was what that depression rather led me to um, self-medicate. So I began using drugs that helped me to numb that pain and and feel you know soft and good inside at least momentarily um so that was an opiate addiction that developed pretty quickly and spiraled into like a heroin addiction that was really um bringing me down uh in life like taking me out um and and that led me to wake up in my car one morning at three o'clock in the morning having driven off the road blacked out behind the wheel and wow. went into a river and and that almost was the end of my life <laughs> um luckily the window was open so i could climb out and and swim to shore wow and that was that moment where i said that i needed to make a drastic change in my life or else i would die yeah and and then a couple weeks later i flew down to the amazon rainforest and drank ayahuasca with a Peruvian curandero named Don Juan. And that totally saved my life and it totally changed the direction of my life forever. Yeah, wow, amazing. Thank you for that share. I mean, that was definitely my next question of how did you find your way to the medicine? So obviously that gives us that. I'm very curious. You mentioned, okay, it saved my life in what way and as and i mean that meaning what did the medicine show you in those first ceremonies such that you were so fundamentally changed and then subsequently called to do more well for more detail on how i actually got to iquitos peru and to that curandero don juan um that was to me like a message from god 
uh, I was standing on the bank of that river at three o'clock in the morning, looking at my car underwater, trying to process what the hell had just happened. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I realized my will to live, which was an important step in yeah. towards healing and that I did not want to die. And had you asked me a few weeks earlier, I probably would have been a little bit more ambivalent about it mm -hmm. and, and the idea of it, you know, and, and here I was knowing that, yes, I did want to live. And I made a statement to God, like, you know, I, I want to live and I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I need to do. Yeah. And then about 10 days later, I got a random email from someone who had been in Japan for two years, a close friend of mine, but I hadn't seen her in two years. She had been teaching English in Japan and on her way back, she stopped in Peru as a tourist, mm -hmm. decided to go to the Amazon rainforest. So went to Iquitos and mm -hmm. ran into these two guys, Roman and Eugene from Russia. And they told her about ayahuasca and that they knew this shaman named Don Juan. And she remembered me telling her about ayahuasca because I had read the book, um, the Michael Harner book, Way of the Shaman, where he talked about his own experiences with ayahuasca. And it was fascinating to me. And that had led me to kind of research a little bit more about it and tell her about it. And so when she heard the word ayahuasca, she thought of me and decided mm -hmm. that she was going to drink ayahuasca and wrote me an email to see if I wanted to fly down and do it with her. Wow. That came right after that near-death experience. So I viewed it as this was the response, like this was the universe showing me the way to yeah, my salvation. So when I got on the plane to fly down to Iquitos, I wasn't going to like try I knew already, I had already decided that this was a divine synchronicity, yes. synchronicity that was playing out in my life. And that's an important detail to mention because it provided the ultimate setting and set for me to yep. take this step forward in my healing. And so what happened specifically was, I mean, a lot happened, obviously. <laughs> I'm writing a book about it, so I will go Good. into a lot more detail in that book. But one Good. key thing that happened was that I was <laughs> able to see the moment where I formed a truth in my mind about my presence, my role, my Please. my life, in, and how I fit into my parents and the family organism, mm -hmm. but specifically... It was a truth that was not true, but I believed it to be true in this single moment as an eight-year-old child listening to my parents argue and then yep. bring up my name in their argument. Mm. And I decided at that moment that I was the cause of the divorce that would eventually oh. play out and that if I had never been born, that all, you know, I, I would never have caused all these problems in, in, in my family. And, wow. and that was a truth that I had formed at the age of eight that I completely forgot about that scene at all, that event yeah. taking place, all of it. But I was shown it in an ayahuasca ceremony and I was present in the room as an adult. I was 28 years old and I, um, I was able to like talk to my eight-year-old self and, and, and show him that that was not accurate. And yeah. when I released that as a truth in the core of my belief system, it caused this, you know, crumbling of 
all the beliefs that had been built on that truth came falling down. And that mm -hmm. was the most important step forward in healing that trauma. And, and that was massive. Now I could love myself. I didn't hold on to that guilt. I didn't think I was a burden on the world or my family yeah. anymore. Like all of those things had been tied to this one singular truth that I had formed at this particular moment. And, and I had released that the same way that you might, you know, release a truth that you have held for a long time when presented with information that shows you that it's not true. And, yeah. and there it was but so real, undeniably. And, and so that was a massive step forward in, in my transformation, my, my saving of my life. But then also, I, in that same ceremony, had a spirit come to me and put his hand on my shoulder, and I felt his hand on my shoulder. I looked at him with eyes open and could see him. And my friend who had written me that email was in ceremony with me, she called out to me and said, Carlos, hey. I'm looking over at you and there's a man standing next to you. And wow. so she could see this spirit as well as me. And that was obviously very significant because I could have written that off as a strange hallucination, but I couldn't yep. have written off that she could see it too. We and should. at that point, we I should. put my hand out. I shook hands with this male spirit I asked him his wow. name and when he told me his name I instantly recognized him to be an, a very important person from my youth who had committed mm. suicide four years earlier I wasn't thinking about him there was no way I was like conjuring him or something but here he Rosary. was and I was face to face shaking hands with him and wow and that was a massive moment in forming a new truth and so in that one ceremony, I, I released an inaccurate truth that freed me and allowed me to love myself again and to see myself in a more accurate way that was completely healing for me. And then I also formed a new truth about the reality of spirit and how they were as real as you and I are. Yeah. And that was also incredibly groundbreaking, like really kind of shattering my worldview and my reality and and there were a number of those but that was a key one that really set me up so that in this third ceremony the next ceremony um the corandero don juan told me that it was my destiny and my path in life to be a healer and he invited me to mm. live with him as his apprentice which i accepted that offer and then wow. i moved in and lived with his family for four years wow tremendous amazing one of the things that you there's so much in there but one of the things that you spoke to relative to sitting with medicine and this is from my experience also and I was literally just talking with a friend yesterday about this this distinction of it's one thing to cognitively know something for you as a 28-year-old man, an adult who's grown and had that experience of depression and knowing cognitively I wasn't the cause of my parents' divorce, right? You can logically connect to that idea as we, as we grow into adulthood and whatnot, but it's quite another to feel like deeply, like bodily, emotionally, energetically, 
energetically, spiritually to release those untruth, untrue thoughts. And so I just, I, that, I feel like your story perfectly illuminates that. And as one of the powers of ayahuasca and other plant medicines is that like real, I know deeply in every whatever fiber of my being, whatever my being is, I know that that is not true and I can let it go. And I know that this is true and I can hold on to this. That's, that is huge power huge, huge power. I uh, So amazing that you then change your life. I mean, some people might hear that and go, oh my gosh, you went and lived there for four years. Like what happened to your regular, quote unquote, regular life? Did you just jettison things that you cared about? Like I think some people might hear that and feel almost afraid of that as an outcome versus other people might hear that and go, wow, that's amazing. What an, a beautiful opportunity that you were given, were able to accept and seize as it were. So how would you speak to that? You know, because people do talk about ayahuasca as driving major life decisions and major change. And what would you say to the people who, who hear that and think it's scary? Well, I don't think that that story is normal. Um, <laughs> that doesn't happen that often, although it does, it, do, it, it does happen. Um, I think that if you were to imagine that you found what you felt to be your destiny or your path in life and and then were presented with an opportunity to follow that path, then the choice would be an obvious one, even if there were all these other factors. Now, I should say that I made that decision and accepted that offer that night. Mm-hmm. But when I flew back, and that was a couple of weeks later, because I did stay for for a couple more ceremonies, and you know I was there for a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And so I was I was like set that this was the plan. But when I flew back, reality sunk in, or at least the reality of back home, like yep. the life I had, and it was a crazy idea. You know, like what are you talking about? You, you can't like move to the Amazon rainforest and live with a shaman. What is it? Yeah. You, like you must have just been crazy. Like mm-hmm. you had, I call it jungle fever. Like I must have been like jungle fever. Yeah. So when I landed in New York on my return, I had changed my mind. Like there was no way I could actually do that. Like Who? actually move to the Amazon rainforest and live with a shaman. Like it was silly to even imagine it. And then my friend picked me up at the airport and he introduced me to a friend of his that he had met while I was in Peru. And and she said to me, I have two friends in Peru. Maybe you met them. And I was like, you know, what? And she said, yeah, Roman and Eugene, they're from Russia. And I was like, are you kidding? I like, I, I... I definitely met them. I drank ayahuasca with them five times. I lived in their house. Like I was wow. staying with them. Oh my gosh. And and she took my hand and she looked me dead in the eye and she said, I don't know what you're doing, but I know it's important and no matter what anyone else thinks, you must do it. And I just looked up and I gave a thumbs up like, God, got it. And that changed my mind back. So, wow. 
even when we have doubts, if we feel that the universe is really reminding us or trying to give us this message, then yeah, we're still in that place where we can say, you know what, that is crazy. Or we can say, I'm going to do something crazy. And because it really feels like more than me is trying to tell me to do this. And that's the feeling of finding a path. Like that's one you you describe. Yeah. You say, I think I've found my path in life. And you can't help but do it. And and so, yeah, like does that mean if you go down to the Amazon rainforest and are healed that you're going to move there? Very <laughs> unlikely. But right. does it mean that you might come back and make a big change in your life? That's much more likely. Yes. Because, yes. you know, there's, a, there's a, a really simple, and I wish I could credit it to the right person um, because it's not my quote and I don't know where I got it, but it's a very simple idea. If you have a fish, if you have a fish tank and you have fish and your fish gets sick, <laughs> you clean the tank. That's like, you know, fish keeping 101, right? Like if right. your fish gets sick, you take them out of the tank, you put them in pure water. Maybe you put a couple drops of something like medicine in that water, but you clean the tank. That's the most yeah. important part. And and that means that the mass majority of the, the sickness is attributed to environmental conditions. And so <laughs> when if you go through a massive transformation of healing, then yeah, you've you've cleansed your inner environment. That's huge. But yeah. when you come back, it's almost a necessity that you'll have to clean aspects of your outer environment as well because they were most likely contributing to the issues that you wanted to heal as well. Oh, that is so important. I am so happy you just shared that because I do think that that is a piece of healing that is often missed and is often not given attention or as is as prioritized as the internal work. And I say that from my own experience of being very, you know, focused on what's going on inside, very self-aware, very introspective, very, very committed to that part of my healing, but then being like, okay, but what, what is my outer experience reflecting? Why is my house a mess? Why is, you know, like that type of stuff? What, what, what is going on in my financial life? And just looking at these things. And going, what and how are these things also contributing to my current state, current emotional challenges, current uh, all all kinds of challenges? But I, that's that's powerful. Um, the one one thing that I thought when you were sharing also is this quote, and I I always forget who said this, but about trailblazing and about being willing to make these perceptibly crazy decisions is that we're always crazy until we're genius, right? So when you're like on the edges of pushing against societal norms and vastly accepted ideas in the societal structure or whatever, if you're living outside of that, you and you, any of us, we look crazy. You look crazy until the masses sort of begin to adopt and acceptance. I feel like that's a huge part of why these conversations are so important. I just talked to another friend. I did another interview myself the, this week. And the person I was talking to was like, 
not experienced at all in this realm. And gosh, I'm not either. I'm, I'm, I still very, very much feel elementary in my experience, but very committed to using my voice and platform in, in a similar way to change the narrative, to get this information out there. But anyway, this person was like, I just keep hearing ayahuasca, 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 plant medicines. And I'm like, that's part of us. I feel like pushing and and being in service to the tipping point of this narrative changing and ha- helping people even on an ideological level start to access these medicines. Like you going, oh, this is something I wanted to research and learn about. But then it's another thing to have never heard about it and be like, what are you doing? So anyway, I digress. <laughs> well, there's a there's a, a, I'm I'm hearing some some like important ideas in that as well. Um, you know, to me, ayahuasca, what ayahuasca does is it reduces sensory gating, and and so when taking ayahuasca in the context of the traditional rituals that have been developed for so long to enhance that effect to work with that effect of reducing sensory gating by that i mean to reduce the amount of um limitations that we give that we're, we're like programmed to have for for good reason but to allow us to process more sensory information so reducing the gating means that we amplify our sensory ability or sensory perception and and that to me then speaks to what you were talking about, where you can have like a cognitive idea, but when you expand the sensory information, now it becomes much deeper. It, it becomes a transformative experience. And, and sometimes those truths reside because we naturally reduce sensory gating in times of fear. Mm-hmm. Because if we feel like our survival is being threatened, then as a natural biological response will reduce sensory gating to give us the advantage we might need for our survival. You know, so I want to hear more than normal. I want to see more than normal. I want to have all of my organs communicate with as much information as possible because that little edge could be the difference between surviving and not. So I think of it as a biological response. But then you come back when you've survived, you come back to the normal sensory gating so that you can function in the world. If you're walking around seeing spirits all the time, it would be difficult for you to navigate that world or to drive a car or anything like that. If you could hear all the spectrums of sound, it would be like impossible just to have a conversation because there'd be so much else that you'd be picking up. And, and so those sensory gating systems are very helpful for us to navigate the world that we live in in today's age. But if we can, in a very controlled way, expand that sensory information like we do in an ayahuasca ceremony, we can make a transformation or release inaccuracies in our truths and our belief system and adopt more beneficial uh, more accurate and beneficial truths into our belief system. And that's what I think happens in in an ayahuasca ceremony. Um, and so the, the sense organs that we have are the classic five that we learn about, but really we have a lot more sense organs. In fact, every organ is a sense organ. Yeah. And, but unfortunately, we don't give that much credit to them or attention. 
but right. we have still these lingering ideas. I mean, you know something in your heart. So we reference like that we can know things in our heart, but but they're not so real for us. It's almost like an expression that doesn't have basis in reality, but it does. Or you have a right. gut feeling. Well, I, I, you know, my gut tells me that's real. Like your gut really does tell you, your heart really does know. And, and ayahuasca amplifies our ability to access that information as well, which can bring our attention back to the information that we receive from those other organs that we don't normally listen to. And all of that could be summed up as intuition, right? Yeah. That's the word that we probably best have to describe that. And, and so what plant medicine does is it expands our intuition. And what intuition is, is the communication that we have with our outside world, with yeah. the earth can speak to us, with plants that can speak to us, with environmental elements that can speak to us, but they yeah. speak to us through these other organs that we, we don't hear them like an ear, we don't see them like an eye, yeah. we feel them. And, and so people are being receiving these messages, they're being like called, but they're in a, a language or in, an, in a, a communication that is outside of the normal five senses that we give our attention. Yeah. What advice would you give to a new person? Uh, um, and I'm going to continue with your experience after this, but I'm curious about if someone's listening to this and they're wanting to learn more and they're like, I think I want to do this and meet this medicine in some form, what would you, what advice would you give them? Well, I founded the Ayahuasca Foundation specifically for people like that to make it easier so that they don't have to have a crazy synchronicity event that brings them down to meet a, a corandero and then return, yep. you know? Yeah. Um, so you know, obviously like visiting the Ayahuasca Foundation, but there's a there's so many articles, there's films, there's documentaries, um, there's books. So I think that that would be a, a, a natural like step is like, hey, I'm going to learn more about this. Yeah. I did a 10-part series called Lessons from Ayahuasca on our YouTube channel, cool. which is also on our website, which Amazing. I think it could be helpful. Um people that have watched that have like commented to me and said like that was really helpful for me to understand it Great. better but one of the things that I talk about is relationship um, you know what we're describing in plant medicine is outside of the, the classic realm of our reality which I think is very materialist it's very mm -hmm. um, scientific but scientific in the material sense that well, if you look under a microscope, that kind of like idea, what are the chemicals? You know, what is the, the active ingredients and how does that interact with our other chemistry? And yeah. that's the understanding. And I'm not denying any of that, but the, the ayahuasca plant medicine tradition exists in a very non-material realm or the spiritual realm. Right. And so understanding it can be a challenge because we've learned over so many years uh, living in the modern world to interpret everything into this material paradigm. And and so to deal with something that's non-material or spiritual is a challenge for us. But relationship to me is this great bridge because 
relationship is not material. Yeah. And, you know, we have relationships. Everyone has relationships. And and so to me, that's like a great way to make a, a bridge to understanding non-material elements of a reality that's really distant from us or distinct from the ones that we're familiar with. And in relationship, you might have some ideas about who you think you want your partner to be. Mm. Right? You're like, <laughs> I think I want to like, have a partner that's this and this and this and this you know and and but then the reality is man you you find yourself like how the hell did i fall in love with this person right you know like they're 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 not checking any of the boxes that i had predetermined as my partner you know and and we're all so familiar with that that to me that's helpful when talking about getting involved in plant medicine or, or navigating that. And by that, I mean that no matter what the check boxes are, like I could give you the list of check boxes, just like I could give you those boxes for a, a partner, right? Yeah. But the reality is that it's something that is not, it's not cerebral. It's, it's much more like in our heart. And, and that would be my, my best advice would be to like yeah. follow your heart, really try to listen to it, tune into it, because that will steer you to the the love of your life, you know, the the, yeah. the the feeling of love that allows us to make a commitment and do something crazy, which is to become involved in a deep relationship can be called something crazy too. Oh, amen. God, I love that. So true. I mean, it's funny. I, I call skydiving one of the great loves of my life, and I joke that it's one of my longest-term relationships because I have a much more mature relationship with skydiving as a professional skydiver, as a person who loved it and and has had a multitude of, of different experiences, both in the sport and community, breaking up with the sport and community, getting back together with the sport and community. So it's like similar in in the sense that it doesn't have to be a person. It can be anything that we're called toward. You know what I mean? Ayahuasca and plant medicine and deep healing work is simply extremely powerful if we want to make change in our lives and selves, if we are living in any amount of pain, if we are suffering in a way that we can't necessarily figure out or we can't necessarily currently understand and we need help. I feel like it's such an amazing partner in that respect. And one of the things I want to touch on before we go to the next kind of thing I want to talk about is the safe container. Because that you're like, oh, yeah, okay, and invite people certainly to go to the Ayahuasca Foundation. That's why you started it. For this notion of people need a safe container and they need avenues of entry that are more accessible than a mystical spiritual intervention in one's life. Um, but additionally, the safe container relative to, okay, you have a powerful ayahuasca ceremony and it's held in a safe space with trusted trusted facilitators, shaman, what, what, what have you, and the coaching and integration that is in support of that. Like, how do we take what we've gotten from ceremony and how much do you think the safe container and the coaching container uh, around the ceremonial work is like what 
would you have to say about that? How important is that in your view? Like what do you have any insight to offer on that part of it, not just the ceremonial experience? Sure. Well, if it's possible, I, I like to use that relationship um, comparison again. Like I said, like I think it's a great bridge. Um, sure. And and the reality is that there's a whole spectrum, right? Um, some people definitely need coaching with their relationships. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's like the far end of that where someone like really will depend on that coaching. Like it's all, it's like the most important component for their relationship to be healthy. But other people would be the far end of the other end of the spectrum. Don't need it at all. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they're, they have like what it takes to figure it out. And I see that I, I offer coaching mm. to everyone that does our programs. Yeah. And, and so when I do the preparation coaching, yeah. as an example, sometimes people have a lot of questions Yeah, and, and that's totally fine. And for those people, someone there to answer all those questions is very, very helpful. And sometimes people don't have any questions. They say, you know what? I trust this thing. I, I, you know, like I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I don't have any questions. I just know that this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. In which case we just kind of hang out and talk a little bit. But those are experiences that I've had coaching people that demonstrate that there's a full spectrum about where people are at. And then the same kind of happens on the end of it. People come back and some people come back and they have their plan and they've got it all worked out and they know exactly the changes that they're going to make and they know exactly how to integrate this into their lives. And they, they're just, I just listen to them and I kind of become a cheerleader for that. I'm like, hey, I love to hear that. That's a great idea. I totally agree with that, you know, and, and in that sense, I don't think they really need much coaching. And then there's the people that are like, you know what? I don't really understand this and I'm really struggling. Right. And, you know, and those are the people that we really dive into and, and the coaching be- becomes really, really beneficial for them. So I would say that you definitely want to have it available. Yeah. But thankfully, I mean, 20 years ago when I went down, integration wasn't even a word, you know? I mean, it, was, it wasn't uh, something that people talked about. And... And so we've come a long, long way in the last two decades and you can find like an integration coach and it's not like crazy to, to look out for them and, and find a person that can like understand what you're going yeah. through and provide you some guidance and some help and support in that. I definitely think that's really helpful, but I think it's also important to recognize that there's a full spectrum of of what's happening there. I think the ideal of what I try to get people to in the preparation, I want to get them to that place where they say, I know this is exactly what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And and that's because I knew that was my feeling. When yeah. I went down, I knew it was exactly what I was supposed to do. When you know something is exactly what you're supposed to do and something goes sideways, you know, like something doesn't, go in a joyful way you know like you have a 
a challenge, a struggle, obstacles, all of this, but you know that you're supposed to do this, then you fit that into that interpretation. The knowing that you're that this is where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do becomes the guide of your interpretation. And then you say, well, then I've got, I must have to deal with this. This must be part of it. And, and so when you, when you know that you're on that path, and I use an example too, like if you and I went hiking on a path that I'd been on a hundred times, but you'd never been on that path. And we came to this giant boulder that was totally blocking our way. But I said, hey, no, no, we're, we're on the right path. That's this right. boulder has just like gotten here, but we just need to figure out a way over this. And, and you, we, we make it through and then we're, we're still following the path. And so wow. I would be the one that knew that we were on the right path. And therefore, I would guide you over that obstacle. But if you hadn't been there with me, you might have been like, well, this isn't right. You know, I'm turning around. I'm, I'm going <laughs> right. back because yeah. there's clearly, there's no, it's the end of the path, right? And, <laughs> right? and what that is trying to speak to is the power of knowing, the power of faith. That's yeah. what I really think it is, is that faith. And that's mm. when our organs speak better than our minds. Our minds don't Absolutely. give us faith. You can't get mm-hmm. faith with your thoughts, but you can with your heart. And, mm. and that's why we love people with our hearts, you know, because love is an expression of faith. And, and so to try to come back to that safe container, again, with relationships, if we don't always do something based on safety with relationships either, you know, we should, we, you know, yeah. there, we should always like, there should always be some criteria for, for safety. And, and I think that in m- almost every case, we do feel that those criteria have been met, but, but yeah. there's always the idea, you know, you get into a relationship, Hey man, you might get crazy hurt. In right. this relationship, but right, but we, st- you know, so there's a big risk. You know, there's a risk in every relationship that we get into. But is that to say, well, then don't get in any relationships? No, because the reward is so great. So yeah. we know that we have to take a risk in getting into a relationship, especially when we love someone. You know, like that's like all yeah. oh, the risks are big, but the rewards are big, and so. I hope that this is making sense. But again, like if you're following your heart, then of course you want to meet that criteria. And I think that we meet that also when we like, you know, he's this person seemed like they were really cool, but something was off. Well, if, you know, if something's off, that's a huge tell that, yeah, (laughs) this isn't something I'm going to pursue. And in that sense, if you translate that literally, if you think that you found a ceremony or a place or a person that you want to work with, then get to know that, you know, talk to that person, send an email to that center, find out more information so that you can get that feeling so that Mm -hmm. you can get that vibe. You know, the website looked great. I sent them some emails and I asked if I could schedule a call. And when we spoke, I wasn't feeling it. Well, then yep. that's not the space for you to go. 
That's you know, right. you want all of those pieces to to come together. And that's why I like using relationship as a as a metaphor, you know, that bridge, because we would do the same thing. You know, we hopefully you wouldn't just say, I'm gonna fly to a country with this stranger because their yeah. profile looked good on, right. on you know, the app or whatever. So right. um so in that sense, like it's again like that same concept of following our hearts and and using those judgments but understanding that yeah i'm taking a risk but i'm yeah. i'm taking the risk knowing that there's the reward because there's no way to like go to do anything in life but especially like to go do a plant medicine retreat there's a risk yeah hey, i you know it would be silly to to suggest that you're not going to be taking some level of risk yeah absolutely you jumped you know, out of airplanes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I'm I'm that... deeply <laughs> deeply connected to risk and fear and and what is the bodily response when that is it is present versus when intuition is present. It's been a lifelong like quest for not necessarily mastery, but that's sort of the word that comes up around it, but it's only because when you feel confident in in that skill set you feel free. You feel more free to live into things that challenge you and and bring up fear in your body. Like one of the things that I say often, and it's most certainly because of my healing work with ayahuasca and psilocybin in the ceremonial context, is I'm not afraid of my feelings at all. Like I feel fear when I am potentially going to feel uncomfortable feelings, but I can very much understand that that's not actually something to be afraid of. It's something that I've cultivated a skill around in order to go go forward into these sort of unknown realms of my own mind, of my own body, of my own life, of my own relationships, and do the things that I want to do, even though I don't know what the outcomes are going to be. I feel like that's such a powerful parallel with medicine work too. And speaking of rewards, you mentioned like we risk in order to get the reward and you're doing this amazing research about how this work and working with ayahuasca can help heal depression, anxiety, and trauma. And I would love to hear more about that because I would love to invite people into the idea that healing depression, anxiety, and and deeper trauma is possible for them too. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, first, I'm not a scientist or a doctor either. Um, this research, I, we were hosting that research, so it's in collaboration with a group called Onaya Science, and cool. they are scientists and doctors um, from the UK. Um, Simon Ruffle was, is a doctor from the NHS in, in England, and he came and did a retreat. And, and I think that was 2016, I want to say. And and he was blown away. And as a doctor, he was like especially blown away Boom. because he's a psychiatrist and he was witnessing like this unbelievable amount of transformation and change in such a short amount of time. And he was like, I can't, you know, I can't understand how this is happening and he said I would love to study this and and my response was well I'm building a research center right now and so we connected and we started this collaboration in 2017 and 
And so the research, you know, from a very like practical point of view is filling out psychological evaluations before a program, after a program, and six six months after a program. And, And the results were amazing in that there was this incredibly sharp decline in symptoms of depression and anxiety to the point where a person would no longer be diagnosed as having depression or anxiety. And six months later, the anxiety came back slightly, but the depression continued to decrease six months later, you know, without any other treatment, uh, which was really interesting. So there was a tremendous improvement even six months later with anxiety, but even more improvement with the depression which suggests that there was a real permanent change there. Yeah. There was something that was really transformed. And that speaks to my experience too. Like when I released that truth or replaced it with a more accurate truth that was beneficial rather than detrimental to my well-being, then I continued on in life where I then made the adjustments to my own belief system according to that core truth. And and that's how I would see it. Now, childhood trauma was the original um, study that has now expanded into all forms of trauma, including PTSD. But trauma is really at the root of it all. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, we're seeing a lot of talk about trauma now. And, and that is the perfect example of a non-material condition, as is anxiety and depression, but trauma as the root of it, a non-material condition that simply can't be addressed in the reality that we live in because it's such a material-based reality. Our medical system is very, very material-based such that we view depression as a chemical imbalance that can be corrected with a different set of chemicals. And that is now proving itself now that we've had a couple decades to to look at that, that that's not working. Antidepressant medications aren't doing what we thought they would or hoped that they would. And and to me, again, that speaks to the fact that we're trying to treat a non-material issue with a material solution. Mm-hmm. So plant medicine is the perfect solution because it exists in the non-material realm where the condition exists. Yeah. And healing that trauma is really at the root of so much. Even the physical elements can be manifested in trauma as well. And, um, and so the results of that have been groundbreaking to say the least but one very interesting part of that study was the epigenetic aspect of it and that was written up in the frontiers and there's been about six publications of studies that have been hosted by the ayahuasca foundation but that one got the most attention for sure yeah because in that one they were looking at a particular gene called sigmar one and in the epigenetic understanding of genetics it's not just the genes that you have, but which genes are activated or deactivated. And what determines whether a gene is activated or deactivated is actually environmental, wow. which could be inner environment or outer environment. Yeah. So a gene could be activated if you have exposure to a contamination, as an example, or an exposure to something unhealthy in your outer environment, but it can also be activated by something unhealthy in your inner environment, which would be trauma as an example. So Sigmar-1 is a specific gene that had already been recognized to be activated by trauma. So if a person has an activated Sigmar-1 gene, 
then chances are that person suffers from trauma. Mm. And that gene could then be looked at before and mm. after. And then after the retreats, that SIGMAR1 that had been activated was now deactivated, which then suggested that the trauma had been resolved. And that was done in a material way, right? Wow. So that was material research. And all of the research essentially is material, but it's describing a change in the non-material. Fascinating. And, and that's the best that we can do. You know, that's that's the best that we can do is just to demonstrate that, yes, this definitely works. And hopefully we'll be able to incorporate more elements of the rituals and the tradition into our understanding of how best to, to treat a patient. One simple thing, an example of that, and if you've drank ayahuasca, you, this is most likely your experience. When you take the cup of ayahuasca, you state your intention. Okay. Now, behind that is this massive set of beliefs where this medicine is a spirit and the spirit has a consciousness and this consciousness wants to heal you and to help you. And it's part of the earth and the earth is a being and it has a consciousness. You know, there's this huge belief system and, and reality behind the act of stating your intention before you drink the ayahuasca. But the stating of the intention is an act that is important because to me, it, it puts to the forefront of your intention what it is that you're there to do. We don't have that simple act in our own medicine. If you're taking yep. a pill that you want to heal you, most of the time you hate the pill as opposed to love the medicine. Like you're like so grateful for ayahuasca. It's built into the reality yep. of the system that you're grateful that it exists. You're yes. thankful that yeah. you get to hold this cup and drink it. Whereas our medicine in the Western world, you hate your medicine. Mm -hmm. It's like you despise mm -hmm. it. So already your relationship with the thing that you think you want it to heal you is like the worst it could be. It'd be like calling up your enemy for help. Yeah, right. And, huh? and then we... And then we take it and then we just like, whatever, I'm, <laughs> you know, on to the next thing. A moment later, like I just pop this pill and get in my car and drive to work or do whatever I need to do. Yeah. And there's no attention. There's just no attention to what your goal is. So even if you wanted the pill to heal you, there's no messaging yeah. to provide that connection. And because you hate it, your body is probably going to be like, let's get rid of this, yep. you know, as quickly as possible because this is clearly something we hate. As opposed to loving the medicine like you do with ayahuasca or you're grateful for it, these high vibrational frequency emotions we associate with the medicine and then it comes in our body. Our body's like, hey, this is the best stuff we have. Let's do everything that we want to do. This is going to get us there. Mm. You know, it's it's an obvious like no-brainer that could be implemented yeah. into our modern medical system and improve the outcome. So that's my hope is like through these through this research we can demonstrate that not only is are there medicines that can treat the conditions that we're suffering from better, but also we can learn from the way that the medicine is implemented mm. and incorporate those elements into our modern medical system to improve the outcomes. Oh yes. I love all of that. It's so it's so interesting the anecdotal evidence comparatively to the 
you know, scientific evidence and how different people resonate differently with each and or with both, as in either seems to be tons of anecdotal evidence to support what you are now showing in the scientific research, where, like you just said, in my personal experience, my depression was changed. I can absolutely say the same thing. I struggled with a lifelong anxiety, anxious attachment experience in love relationship and and other relationships as well. And because of my work with ayahuasca, and I've said this, shared this story at length on other episodes, so I won't go fully into it. But like, really, that anxiety, it's not that I never feel anxious in my life or in my relationships now, but not even close to what I used to feel. It is not the same. It is it, it is healed in so many different respects. And that's just one story. But it is something that speaks to we're trying to prove that these medicines are indeed medicine and can have measurable and life-changing, life-lasting impacts on depression, anxiety, trauma. And so anyway, I love that. I love that but that we're starting to have things that the more scientifically minded, the more resistant to these ideas, the ones who are like, I don't know about storytelling, but maybe I'm more into seeing the data. I'm glad that people now have an entry point through that as well. Um, relative to the other stuff. Well, the, you, this yeah, year, go ahead. this year, we're going to be working on um, we, we have already been three studies uh, have now been done with heroic hearts mm-hmm. that works with veterans. So we've been doing research on the treatment of PTSD in veterans. And that is really the most important research, in my opinion. And and why I say that is because it's the veterans that are going to change the laws of our country. In fact, I'm, I'm not totally sure, but I think that there is a an addition to a defense department of defense bill so like to ask for a department of defense increase in in spending or or funding i think there is a bill to decriminalize psychedelic yeah or to to include psychedelic research for treatment of veterans with ptsd and so the veterans are are essentially like the the motivation to make quicker action to take the actions that we all want, yeah. but it's because of the veterans that we will be able to make the laws be the way that they should be, yeah. which is that we should be able to take the medicines that we want to take and and that we should have the, the right, like the freedom over our own consciousness, essentially. Definitely. Um, and so psychedelics should be decriminalized, if not legalized. And, and that would, to me, like bring about a massive change in our cultural understanding of how humans exist on earth and what the earth is and what our relationship is to it and what our relationship is to each other and what our relationship is to ourselves. So that research has also been phenomenal. The results have been incredible. I'm doing the integration coaching with those veterans as well. And one of them wrote me before our session to say, I got home and this morning I woke up and it's the first morning I can remember where I wasn't dreading the day no. that I actually looked forward to being alive today. And, you know, the feeling that you get 
knowing that you contributed to someone being able to achieve that in their lives is, is just incredible. And I get to have that all the time. And so those are anecdotal, but behind that will be the research. Exactly. The one weird part of the research that I feel is like a limitation is that the research stops when there's no diagnosis. You know, like the, oh. the range of trauma goes down to where there's no diagnosis. Mm. So if you had PTSD and you got to a point, there's just this like zero point. Actually, that's a great spectrum to imagine. So if you imagine like negative 100 to positive 100, yep. and zero means that you don't have PTSD, then the research only can go there because that's all the medical evaluations do. You wow. either are diagnosed or you aren't. But there's a whole another spectrum on the other side that's not measured. And I wish that we had that measurement, okay. which would be like, you know, if you got to zero, you'd be psyched, right? You'd be like, right? oh man, I don't have depression. But, <laughs> right. but there's a whole zero to 100 beyond that. Like right. you could get up to 50, 60, 70, you know, like yeah. in joy and, and, and love and satisfaction and, and gratitude totally. that just doesn't get measured because, if you know, we, we don't value that as enough, I guess. And medicine's not trying to get us to 70 they're just trying to get us back to zero yeah well it's funny it's almost like entrepreneurial sales tactics where you're like we have to talk about the pain only but really you're so right that the conversation about joy and the conversation i mean Brene brown she says joy is the most vulnerable emotion it's obviously a, a interesting frame to look at joy but there's a lot of vulnerability in being joyful. This the automatic fears of loss, the just we are not coached, we are not taught. I don't think, at least I haven't been to really deeply feel into joy. Like literally one time I was flying back from I had this big job that we were working on for a multitude of years. This our one of our team efforts, we were doing some activism with skydiving and and we had this one event where it felt like we like did it, which seems weird because it was more like it was very stressful and you're in the building phases of this type of experience. And this particular jump and this particular job, the the jump itself went well, but also after the fact, we had a couple of hours just talking with the people who were there. And it was very clear that we were making a difference, a positive difference. And so I get on my flight to go home and I am just, I'm listening to this one song that makes me feel happy and good. And just a, a song I love is called The Moments We Live For. And I felt this overwhelming bubbling up of joy so much that so that I was crying and I just let myself really feel that like with with consciousness and intention to go what is this feeling because whoa this is powerful and so it's like I I like to invite people into those experiences just as much as the ones where we're puking out our demons and you know, <laughs> like healing ourselves from the poison as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
it's completely legitimate and I, I was definitely there and everyone that's suffering knows that if they could just get to zero, meaning if they could just get to no suffering, that would be an a huge win. incredible accomplishment, 100%. But there is more than just the alleviation of pain. Yes. There is a whole nother spectrum on the other side of that, the, the plus the zero to 100, as opposed to the negative 100 to the zero. And and we, we, we should acknowledge that as well. And it happens automatically. You know, yeah. if you get from negative 40 to zero, amazing, you know, <laughs> amazing. the amount of healing that took place, incredible. So thankful for all of that. But then you hang out in zero for a while and you automatically say, well, yeah, could I get to plus 40 now? Yes, and, yes. And you know, what are the steps that I could take for that? And and that to me is a part of what happens with plant medicine as well, but that isn't as easy to study because we don't right. have the, the metrics, the evaluations in our medical system to go past Boom. you don't have a problem. I like that we're planting the seeds for that future research that who knows how that might come to come to be in this world. But in before we close, I want to if somebody is like, oh, I want to do this. I want to have this experience. Can you give them just a quick idea of what it would be like for someone to go to the Ayahuasca Foundation, to go to your retreat center? What would they experience? Tell us tell us about that. And and then, of course, tell us any other way people can get in touch with you and how they can connect with you or follow or support the research, all of that stuff before we close today. Sure. Um, so our shortest program is a 10-day retreat. And so that would probably be the easiest. Uh, everything is kind of based on the 10-day retreat, except for our four-week and eight-week programs. And that, I think, might have to be another uh, episode because another there's a episode. lot to talk about in a <laughs> perfect, component perfect, of those. But perfect the 10-day <laughs> the, the retreat, um, the 10-day retreat, so you would sign up and there would be a series of communications back and forth with me, eventually leading to us scheduling a preparation counseling session um, where we talk about all of the things that we mentioned earlier, addressing any questions and concerns and trying to get as close as we can to a place of faith in this endeavor and this leap of faith. And and then you fly down to Iquitos, Peru, met at the airport, brought to a hotel where all the people gather. They spend a night at the hotel together. There's a meeting at that hotel with all the staff so everyone can feel like they have all their answers quest, uh, questions answered and are ready to go. And then yep. a bus takes them out to a river where then they get on our boat and the boat goes up the Nanai River into a national reserve. And mm. in the middle of the national reserve is where our lodge is located Beautiful. next to the Mishana community who have lived there for about 100 years and who are the employees of our, our center. Um, so. The first ceremony is that night, but we've done as much preparation the day before. And then we have one more meeting before the ceremony to go over more specifically, the ceremony procedures. Then that first ceremony happens that first night, which is a Sunday. The next day, treatments begin. 
So that starts with a digestive system cleanse. We use a plant called Sangre de Grado, and it's a plant in a category of plant medicines called purgatives. Okay. So it makes you purge. That is the purpose. It is like a, a really high-strength cleanse of your stomach so that you can absorb your foods better, receive more nutrients, but really also that you can absorb your plant medicines. Yes, the plant medicines start that day also. So there are three medicines that participants take three times a day. One is to increase circulation. One is to boost the immune system. And one is to increase sensitivity. Yes, and those are taken three times a day and at their oral remedies, plant medicines. Yep. And during the day, that first day, you have a private consultation with the Corandero that's translated for you in the discussion by the facilitators so that okay. you can go over any particular specific treatments that you might require that aren't part of the general treatment plan. Then the next day, we go and get those plants so that they can be ready to give those specific treatments if required by a participant. The next day would be a Tuesday. Tuesday is when vapor baths start. So vapor baths are a really powerful treatment where five plant medicines are boiled in water. And then you have a sauna. We have built this like sauna hut for a private sauna where you yep. absorb the vapors of these plant medicines and the heat opens up all your pores. So it's a really detoxification process. Um, it's the removal of negative energies, if you want to simplify it. And you'll have those vapor baths for the first half of the program. Each day, there'll be a vapor bath. So the detox process is the first half of the program. And wow. then the, the, third, the, the second ceremony will take place that day. Then the next day, there will be, you're continuing to take those three plant medicines each day. Then the next day, you'll have vapor baths again. Yep. There'll be a, a respiratory system cleanse using a plant mm -hmm. called Mukura. So every day, there are treatments. Wow. That, um, on the Friday, you'll take a medicine called Chirixanango, which is a central nervous system cleanse. So there are all of these plant medicines that first half that are all removing blockages, that are restoring the health of particular systems, your digestive system, your respiratory system, your central nervous system, taking medicines to increase your circulatory system as well as your immune system. And then you come to the second half. So every other day you're doing a an ayahuasca ceremony. There's also a sharing circle after yeah. every second ceremony or after yeah. the first two and then the next two and then the last one. And then the second half is about adding positive energy. So then you switch from vapor baths to doing plant baths. Plant oh. baths are water with plants soaked in them but not boiled. Yeah. And they're poured over so that you absorb the medicinal essences of those plant medicines. And so you start to do those every day. You're still taking those three medicines every day as well. And if you needed it, there have been some other medicines incorporated into your personalized treatment plan, which could be oral remedies or topical remedies like poultices and things like that to address certain aches and pains or other conditions and things like that. Um, by the time you get to the end, you have gone through this real arc of your treatment and you do the last baths are what we call love baths to attract Ooh. positive energy. Ben. It's a different set of plants. And the last ceremony is an arcana ceremony that helps to seal up all of the changes and the benefits and of the treatments that took place. And then the last day, you get back on a boat, drive back to the hotel, 
spend one more night in the hotel and meet with yeah. the facilitators one last time the following morning where they'll give you a USB that has the ceremonies that you attended in audio format so you can listen wow. to those ceremonies whenever you want as well as photographs that were taken during the retreat of you receiving those treatments and a bunch of different helpful things like guided meditations. Outside of all of that, there are guided meditations, yoga, and yep. breathwork ceremony that take place during that 10 days as well. So there's a lot of complementary wow. parts to fit it all together. It's a lot that we try it's to like put in amazing. those 10 days, but we do the most that we can with the time that we have. Absolutely incredible. Thank you very much for giving such detail because I get I get asked that question a lot, like what actually happens in a ceremony? And so I think that very, very itemized detailing of what occurs at your location, and it, it varies between other other centers, your center versus someone else's center, but it gives a great idea, I think, of of what occur, what can occur, what does occur. Um, and I'm just so grateful to meet you, Carlos. I'm so happy to know you. I'm so grateful for your sharing and just coming on and your willingness to come on and, and share your story and yourself and all this information that I'm certain is going to help a lot of people. How can we support you? Like, where can people find you? What should they follow? All of that stuff. Thanks so much for saying that. That's very kind of you. It's been a great conversation with you as well. Um, yeah, so Ayahuasca Foundation is our organization. So if you went to ayahuascafoundation.com or .org, um, you'll find our website that has all of that information about each of our retreats as well as the educational courses and a lot of like just helpful information, including that 10-episode series on our YouTube channel called Lessons from Ayahuasca. I'll put this interview up there as well. I have done a number of interviews that I try to be as helpful as possible. Um, and then we're on all of our social media. So if you were to look up Ayahuasca Foundation or Carlos Tanner, you'd find me or our organization on across all the social media. I don't use social media that much, to be honest, but yeah. I will post like something like this um, to let followers know. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, on that note, family, thank you so much for spending this time with us. We love you. We're grateful you're here, too. Of course, any and all Trust the Journey stuff is at trustthejourney.today. And thank you for being here. Love you so much. <laughs>